Well, it is a great joy to be with you all this morning, and as all of our children find their way downstairs, it's a great joy to, to be ministering to you all, to this, in my mind, still young and growing and vibrant church. I believe the count we, we had a couple weeks ago, I think we had 52 children downstairs between nursery, both nurseries, junior church. We're looking to expand junior church even beyond this, so what a great blessing it is to have so many children who we just love and adore. And if anything, as I'm thinking about children, it just makes the mandate for us as adults, especially those who are husbands and wives, to just make sure that we understand how we are to live our lives in faithfulness to God, faithfulness in our marriage, and thereby faithfulness to minister to our own children. So praise the Lord for the families of this church. Well, this morning we are returning for a fourth and final time, at least in this era of teaching, to the topic of Christian marriage. And what occasioned this short series of sermons has been the, dis- the discourse uh, that Jesus has led us on in marriage and divorce from Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And I've shared this with you several times over the last uh, few months and even beyond that. Whenever we have a, a place in Scripture that seems to open up into a larger doctrine, we want to slow down and kind of look around. What does the whole Bible have to say about this specific thing? So when Jesus starts talking about uh, marriage and divorce and even remarriage, we want to pay attention. I'd rather have us learn these things now so that down the road as time progresses and as questions arise, we have a biblical foundation to say, well, this is what the Word of God says. We've learned this together. Now, I don't intend to rehearse everything from the last four weeks, uh, but if you've missed anything, I would really encourage you to go back uh, to the website. There's also, all my sermons are on sermon audio as well, but you can listen to the last three and kind of get a a larger perspective, but I do plan on working uh, briefly over an introduction here. But this morning's topic brings everything full circle as we explore Jesus, the Bible, and now remarriage. By way of introduction, we need to remember that God loves marriage, and he wants it to be an honored institution. After all, Jesus articulates the Bible's teaching on marriage in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Let me just read again for our purposes here. Jesus answering the Pharisees, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so the Lord brings us back. He brings us to the origin of marriage all the way back to the creation account. This also, again, is why Genesis 1 and 2 is so important, not just to study, but to understand this is not just allegory or mere poetry. Genesis 1 and 2 is, has authorial intent. It is the, the word of God describing and telling for us what, is, uh, what took place in the beginning. And frankly, God is the only one who is there at the beginning, so he has the right to tell us what happened. But from the beginning, God creates humanity, and he does so in two sexes, male and female. He designs us biologically, physiologically, spiritually, uh, effectually, emotionally to go together. We're built for each other. Again, one woman for one man for life. That's God's design. And we see that in Genesis 2.24, it's proclaimed that a couple that's joined together in marriage, they are one flesh. They are joined in body, mind, heart, and purpose. And when two people enter into marriage, it is because God has joined them together. Even marriage outside of the church, God has still brought these people together in his kind providence. And if God has joined us together, we are not to separate. But it's been said, and I've heard this said many times in many different ways, that there are no perfect spouses. There's no such thing as a perfect spouse. But once you're married, once you're married, that spouse becomes perfect for you because God has brought you to them. Again, we are not perfect in and of ourselves, but men, if you're married to a woman, she is the perfect woman for you. Women, if you're married to a man, he is the perfect man for you because they are the only spouse that God has given you. If, of course, if we understand that sin destroys everything it touches, including marriage, then we have to get into that whole mess of why and how sin mingles and messes with our marriages. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks as well. 
And while Christians are commanded by God to confess their sins to each other, to forgive others, to reconcile, to be restored, that's the desire, it would be great to reconcile marriages that have been broken, yet we still know that there are times when that cannot happen, where the sins are so egregious and the marriage covenant has been so decimated that divorce for some is the only option. That is the only option for earthly peace. Again, earthly peace. And we've asked the question for the last couple of weeks, under what conditions may divorce be allowed? Matthew 19.9, Jesus declares that in the face of the Pharisees' desire to divorce their wives for any reason at all, Jesus counters and says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Here, Jesus is granting immorality, the Greek word is pornea, sexual unfaithfulness as an acceptable grounds for divorce. Not that immorality mandates divorce, because again, forgiveness is always possible. And that has happened in many marriages where one spouse has been unfaithful to the other, they come back in repentance, the spouse forgives them, and they can be restored. And in a sense, that, that's the best option. That's, the, that's the, the godly way to go. But the spouse who has been sinned against in this way is biblically permitted to exit the marriage without having committed sin themselves. This is what we know to be biblical grounds for divorce. But we also noted even last time in 1 Corinthians 7 that the Bible addresses another potential cause for lawful divorce on the grounds of desertion. Desertion. The Apostle Paul notes that the occasion of an unbelieving spouse leaving the marriage, to which Paul instructs the believing spouse who's left behind, he says, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God, again, here we go, is calling us to peace. God calls us to peace. Christians are not obligated to stay married to an unbeliever who abandons the marriage. If they desire to leave, now if they want to stay and live harmoniously with you, you are not to seek divorce from them. But if they leave, if they abandon, if they desert, the Bible says you are not bound in such a case, says Paul. But then comes a plethora of questions, and we talked about this last week. There's so many other conditions and questions and situations, questions about things like what about spousal abuse or what about neglect and the like. And this is where the leadership of Harvest Bible Church has wrestled with this and landed in this position. If a Christian spouse sins in such a way, then engage in the steps of church discipline laid out in Matthew 18. First, the spouse is to confront the sinning spouse directly. If they don't listen, involve others. Now a caveat to that is if there is physical abuse occurring, our position for you is call the police immediately. If it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, if there is abuse taking place, notify the authorities because they are a minister of God for good behavior, Romans 13, and then tell the church immediately, let us know. Not so we can meddle, but so we can help. But otherwise, if that's not the situation, if you're not in danger at that time and your spouse is not repentant, let the church leaders know. And again, the goal is to bring the sinning Christian spouse to repentance and save the marriage. So the goal is not to break people up and cast them out. The goal is restoration. But if the spouse, if they harden their heart and they spurn church discipline and they continue in their sin, then the church will have no choice, according to Scripture, but to render them to be an unbeliever, and then we follow out the principles laid out in 1 Corinthians 7.15 and act accordingly. Again, this is not cut and dry. This is not simple. We have biblical principles to work from, but this is hard, isn't it? This is challenging, because I know all of you, and I can see it on all your faces for the last four weeks, you're thinking, what about this situation? What about this situation? I have a friend who happened with this way and happened this way. And there's so many different things we have to proceed no matter what we do, prayerfully and carefully. It's very easy for us to act and think about these things academically and hypothetically. But the reality of these situations, this is very personal for us. Our marriages, our families, this is personal. And when there is strife and conflict, this is challenging, this is heartbreaking. I have wept with people in my office over broken marriages and divorces. I have cried with people. I've watched them fall apart in front of me. It's, a, it's an awful thing. 
I would even say to you, death is easier than divorce. I'll say that. It's far easier, I believe, to lose somebody through death because you can mourn and heal. Divorce just rips everything apart. Your family, your kids, your friends, everything. Your finances, you name it. So this is a challenging thing, but again, every single church, I believe, and when the churches over the course of time have, have neglected to deal with this biblically, I think that's a, that's a black mark on us. But I think every church, every church leader, every elder, every person has to proceed prayerfully and with great discernment and trusting in the Lord. He does have much to say about this very issue. But all of this, now again, I've, this is just introduction. I've been covering this for weeks now. All this brings us then to today's question. What does the Bible teach about remarriage? Remarriage. Because say a marriage ends in divorce, is remarriage allowed? What does God say about this? Now, for our purposes this morning, I'm not going to be working from a base text, meaning one text that I'm expositing and then applying thereabouts. I'm going to attempt uh, to try and clearly summarize and synthesize the Bible's teaching on remarriage. And so in many ways, this might feel a little bit like a Q&A, question and answer, but it's my sincere hope that this would be uh, helpful in bringing education and encouragement and comfort and even, if needed, conviction by God's grace. And so I want to open up and begin with this basic question, what does God think about remarriage in general? What are his thoughts overall about this concept of getting married again after another marriage? Because there exists the belief today that because God joins two people together in a lifelong marriage, that there can be no situation when remarriage to another spouse is acceptable, and that view does exist. However, and I would contend with you, and I would want to show this to you, the Bible does not support this belief at all. So turn in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 7. I want to look at this together. Romans chapter 7. Now, to be very clear, the context of Romans 7 is not about uh, a prolonged discussion about marriage. It's not talking about marriage. Rather, this is a discussion of the Apostle Paul about the gospel. I mean, all of the Romans is about the gospel, frankly. But right in the middle of this section here, he's just marching point by point by point and articulating the law and sin and grace and the gospel and repentance and all these different things. And so that's what's going on here. And the thrust of Paul's argument, by the time I get to chapter 7 here, is that when you die in Christ spiritually, spiritually, you are freed from the law in order to be joined to the Lord through a new law, which is the law of grace and the law of love. But Paul's argument in making this case to the church is that he's using the common example of marriage and even the death of a spouse to make his case. And so we look at this in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Paul argues, and he, can, he continues from the previous chapter, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man." Now, Paul does not launch beyond this. He doesn't get into a, a trunk or an elongated uh, discussion about marriage or widowhood or anything like that. He just simply assumes this is common knowledge. The audience he's writing to, the church, they understand this principle very clearly that remarriage is allowable for someone who's lost a spouse. And so he doesn't have to argue the case, it's simply implied. Now again, going back to the language itself, as long as both spouses are alive, they are bound, they are held to, they are obligated to the legal mandates of their marriage covenant. However, he argues, if the husband dies, Paul says that she, the wife, would be released from the law concerning the husband. Now, once she is released, verse 3, she is now free to remarry another man. Again, this is all based on biblical law. And these terms become very important as we're going to see a little bit later. These terms bound and released and free, these come back quite a bit. 
But more than simply being free to remarry, there are many places in scripture where widows are actually encouraged to remarry if they so desire. Just a couple of examples, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if a widow doesn't feel like they have the ability to be sexually pure if they remain single, the apostle Paul actually encourages them to remarry. He says, if you can't, if you're, you're going to burn with desire, if you're going to burn with lust, then it's better for you to go and get remarried again. Elsewhere, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 11, Paul encourages younger widows. So men and women who have lost a spouse at a younger age, he says, you ought to remarry for the sake of godliness. Otherwise, he says, they might be more inclined to be given over to sensual desires. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you don't have a spouse, if you've already had a spouse. So Paul says it's better to go and get remarried. Again, 1 Corinthians 7.39, he uses the same language of bound and free. He says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, and then he gives a qualification, yet only in the Lord. Again, The same legal language of bound and free is used here. And also noticing the importance of being equally yoked in remarriage. If your first marriage doesn't work out, it's not just free reign. Well, go find somebody else. It doesn't matter who they are. Christians, the Bible's very clear about this. Christians ought to marry Christians. Otherwise, you are in a spiritually mixed marriage. You're in an unequally yoked marriage. And go ask King Solomon how that worked out for him, right? We see the danger of being married to someone who will lead our heart astray toward the world. And so, again, as a general principle, general principle, God is not opposed to remarriage. In fact, in many cases, he encourages it if it is desired. Therefore, we must not go beyond Scripture's teaching, as some do, and regard a subsequent marriage as somehow inferior to the first marriage. The Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't make any kind of a case like that. God simply doesn't see it this way. But that already, at this point, we're just talking about remarriage for widows. What about this question of remarriage by persons who have been divorced? And once again, I believe that the key to understanding this is wrapped up in this understanding of biblical law, especially pertaining to words like bound and released and free. And so let me start with my thesis here and sort of work into this, and I hopefully this is correct, I believe that it is. And so here's the thesis here. Only those who are no longer bound by their marriage covenant and who are released are free to remarry and only in the Lord. Let me say that one more time. Only those who are no longer bound by their marriage covenant and who are released are free to remarry and only in the Lord. Now, without using the language of biblical law, the Lord Jesus himself already addresses this issue with the Pharisees in Matthew 19, 9. They wanted to be free because they're using law, right? They says, is it lawful for a man to go and divorce his wife for any reason? So they're appealing to law. Jesus answers lawfully. They say, is it okay that we're free to remarry anybody we want for any reason at all? And he tells them, no, you're not. And whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is the only exception that he grants them here. Again, sexual immorality. We know that Paul has more to say. But the idea here is this. If sexual immorality takes place, the innocent spouse, and when I say innocent, I don't mean sinless, I just mean the person who is not Uh, charged with the sin that is breaking up the marriage here, the innocent spouse who then divorces and remarries is free to do so. In other words, they're not committing adultery if they do it. Jesus has already made that case here. So the committal of this specific sin thereby releases the innocent spouse from their marriage covenant. Do you see that? Again, they're not free as long as they're married. But if there is biblical grounds that severs this, the Lord then frees them to go and seek another spouse. Why? Well, because the marriage covenant has already been broken and irreparably violated. This person, the sinning spouse who has done this egregious thing, they've already severed. They've already broken. They have already released their spouse through their own sinfulness. 
Again, the spouse on biblical grounds, they have it to divorce. They are free again to remarry. We see this concept more expressly uh, given in 1 Corinthians 7. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 7 with me. Again, I'm working through territory we've covered last week. We did spend some time here, even though it was kind of a jet-set tour through the whole chapter, or half the chapter. But we have seen some of this. This does cover a lot of ground. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he's talking to the church, and he's he's addressing several groups of people. In verses 1 through 6, he speaks generally about married couples. And then we see him pivot a little bit, and he begins to address single people, and he also addresses widows. And then we see him move again over to a different group. He addresses married couples, and he has two groups of those married couples, or several groups, I should say. First is Christian couples in verses 10 and 11. And then he deals with these spiritually mixed couples where in one situation, uh, an unbelieving spouse is committed to the marriage, verses 12 through 14, and then another example of an unbelieving spouse who is not committed and desires to leave, verses 15 and 16. Now, again, in the passage, the only explicit concession that Paul grants regarding remarriage comes in verse 15, where an unbelieving spouse has deserted the marriage. So look at 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. Again, we've already kind of looked at this last time, but I want to zero in on verse 15 again. He says, if the unbelieving spouse, essentially the unbelieving one, leaves, let him leave, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Here again, we see the same word used prior in different passages, this concept of being bound or under bondage. Yet Paul is specifically telling the spouse that they are not bound if their unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage. If they are not bound, then they have been released and they are now free to remarry in the Lord. Again, that's the thesis I'm working from. Again, remarriage is always permitted in Scripture if the person who has been divorced does so on biblical grounds. So that's very important. If you have biblical grounds then you are permitted to then go and remarry if you so desire. But there's a little bit more going on here. Again, all this is complicated, right? Because I can see all the different red lights in your minds going off at the same time. What about this situation? What about this situation? Again, it's complicated. What happens if a Christian couple gets divorced? Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says to the Christian couple, If the married, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, we know these are Christians because he's going to address non-Christians in a second. This is for the church. And so here's the thing. If a Christian couple gets divorced, if if they followed all the steps of church discipline and it has just not worked out, and they're both still Christians, but yet one of them is just hard in their heart, and they still, they're still want to be in part of the church, but they have just destroyed their own marriage, and they both have divorced her. Say, say it's not one of these biblical grounds kind of issues, and two, two Christian people sin against each other and just divorce. What does the Bible say about that? Well, if that happens, the Bible says that each of them is to remain unmarried. Stay unmarried. Why? Why, if they've divorced, do they have to stay unmarried? But we have to understand something. Once again, God would rather see them reconciled. Remember, Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. So even if you do divorce, he's saying, listen, stay unmarried and try to get remarried. I've known people who've done that. They divorce, they reconcile, and they do get back together. This is why Paul instructs the couples in verses 10 and 11, remain unmarried, what's the purpose? In order to give them an opportunity to reconcile and get back together. That's what he says very clearly in verse 11. Because here's the thing, once one of them gets remarried, there is no longer a chance for restoring that original marriage, is there? Because to go and then terminate the new marriage, to go back to the old marriage, now you're just plunging yourself into a whole new series of sins. You're beginning the cycle all over again. 
Now you're divorcing another spouse and creating more problems. And God, you're now seeking a divorce that God hates over there. So you are not allowed to go and then divorce your new spouse to go and try to reconcile with your old spouse. That's not allowed either. So even if an innocent spouse, and again, I'm talking about those who have not, have not themselves caused the divorce, even if that spouse has biblical grounds, even if you have the right to divorce, and thereby you're now free to remarry, there is wisdom and godliness and biblical counsel for not getting married, at least not right away. If you have been divorced, just wait on the Lord. Wait and see what happens. And I would even just say, as you're waiting, pray earnestly and desire reconciliation. We see this again reflected a little bit later in verse 27. Look at verse 27. I'm in 1 Corinthians 7 still. Paul says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Now look at the language again here. He doesn't say divorced. He says, if you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be released. And then he says, are you released from a wife? In other words, has the marriage covenant been, has been destroyed and it's now gone? You're not obligated anymore? He says, don't seek a wife. What's the purpose of that? To try to reconcile. This bound, released language here. He says, don't chase divorce. Don't desire divorce. I said at the very beginning of this whole thing, only those who are operating outside of the will of God, those who've hardened their own hearts, those are the only ones who actually desire divorce. No Christian who's filled with the Spirit desires and wants to get divorced. Sometimes you're shoved into it. But a person who says, you know what, I could... I really just want to expand my options. I want to play the field a little bit. That's not godly. That's sinful. So no Christian should desire and seek and chase divorce for their own reasons. Again, if you're shoved into it and you have no choice, that's a different situation. But if you get divorced and you're released, he says, don't seek a wife. Now, does he mean forever? Does he mean forever? I don't believe so. Because again, there are situations where the Bible talks about the possibility of getting remarried. For example, look at verse 28. Verse 27, if you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be released. If you're released from a wife, don't seek, uh, don't seek another wife. He says in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. Now, some commentators have said, well, he's talking about single people here. But if you look at the context, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he's saying if you have been released... You should stay single, but if you do go and remarry once you've been released, you're not sinning at that point. It would have just been better if you could have reconciled to your first spouse. Now, this may seem confusing. There may seem like there's a lot going on, but I don't think that it really is. Again, there's a million different scenarios here. Why? Well, because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked and try all kinds of ways to find ourselves satisfying our own desires. We have a million ways to train wreck ourselves and destroy our marriages and harden our hearts. And so again, these are basic biblical principles and prayer and earnest study and uh, wise counsel should be sought at every single turn. But I want to just try to synthesize some of these principles for you. And so number one, number one, once you are married, the Lord commands you to stay married and to engage in confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Again, that's Matthew 19. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. That's Mark chapter 10. That's Malachi 2.16. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Over and over again, we see this. And my concern, my fear, is that too many Christians, when things get hard in their marriage and they get challenging... They don't do this kind of work. They follow the course of the world. The world says, hey, if you don't like him and it's not working out, just bail. I mean, you have the right to be happy, don't you? That's the world talking to you. That's the world putting their system of marriage and divorce and remarriage onto the church. That's not what the Bible says. I think too many people have done this because they followed the world and not followed the scriptures. But once you're married, the Lord commands you to stay married. Number two, principle number two. If one spouse commits egregious, unrepentant sin, for example, sexual immorality that destroys the marriage covenant, 
or if they prove to be an unbelieving spouse who desires to desert or leave the marriage, the innocent spouse can obtain a divorce on biblical grounds. Again, that's Matthew 19. That's 1 Corinthians 7.15. Again, that is allowable to pursue a breaking, a divorce from that sinning spouse. Number three, once divorced, both Christian spouses ought to remain unmarried in an attempt to reconcile their marriage. Again, they've already sinned and destroyed their marriage. They don't have to keep on going with this. They can try to repair, restore, and forgive and be forgiven. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 10 verses, or 7 through, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 and 11, also verse 27. Again, at this point though, the offending spouse is still bound. Again, they're divorced, but the sinning spouse, the offending spouse, is bound. What do I mean by that? Well, their sin caused the divorce. So if they seek another spouse, you know what they've done? They've committed adultery now because they've already destroyed their marriage and committed adultery, and we're talking about sexual sin here, but committed adultery once. If they go and do it again with somebody else, they're even furthering the the transgression. That's Mark 10, 12. That's Luke 16, 18. However, if the innocent spouse, the one who has biblical grounds, if they are not bound anymore, and they're not, but they are encouraged to remain unmarried for the sake of reconciliation, again, they have to stay at a certain, a certain status there. However, number four, number four, once the innocent spouse remarries, again, the one who has biblical grounds, once the innocent spouse remarries, if they remarry, there is no longer an opportunity for reconciliation because that's, that's all over now. And you're not going to go and cause another divorce and create more sins. And so at that point, there is no more chance. And if once that happens, the offending spouse, the one who has sinned and caused a divorce, at that point and that point only, are they no longer bound to that marriage covenant and they are now released from their marital obligation. But again, they would only be able to remarry again in the Lord. They can't just go and do whatever they want. Again, I want to just stress this one more time. All this must be done prayerfully, carefully, and I would even add under godly counsel. If that's the situation, don't just run and hide. And that's happened so many times in the church. A believer, a church member, something goes awry. They never tell anybody in the church about their marriage problem. And they secretly get divorced because they're ashamed and they're afraid and they run away. And I I will say, and I'll admit this, I think some churches have given them cause to be afraid and run away. But what happens is that they harden their hearts, they run away, and next thing you know, it's like, what's going on? Well, so-and-so got divorced. I never, what? And they're married to somebody else now. Are they a Christian? Well, I don't think so. And we, we stray from the flock, and we stray from leadership, and we just ruin ourselves. This is a hospital, my friends. We're meant to help each other. If you're having issues, if you're having problems, talk to somebody. Talk to a trusted Christian friend. I want to say trusted. Don't go to someone who's going to gossip and give you terrible advice or tear you down or whatever it is. Go to someone that is godly in their counsel. None of these steps should be taken lightly, ever. This is serious business. And I would even add to that, in addition to the scriptures teaching about this issue, there is a ton of books written about this very topic One of the most helpful books I've probably ever read about this very thing. It's a a helpful, it's biblical, it's an even-handed approach. There's a book by Jay Adams called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. And again, it's very challenging because sometimes a book will say things, you're like, eh, I don't know if I agree with that, and okay, I could see this, and you're not going to always see everything exactly the same way, but Jay Adams' book is very, very good. It's very helpful, so I would encourage you to read this book. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, all right, well, four weeks of marriage and divorce and remarriage, what do we do next? What are next steps for us? How do we reconcile this? How do we think about this? What do we do? And I would say, if you're finding yourself in marital strife, say you're in a marriage that's fraught with problems, and there are just days when you feel like, I just just want out, I just want to quit, 
Again, I'm speaking to believers now. I don't have much to say to the world because they're doing their own thing. It doesn't really, I have nothing to say as a pastor to them except repent and believe the gospel. But for believers, again, believers in marriage, and if that's the situation you find yourself in, if you're just not doing so great, the Lord commands you not to seek divorce. He wants your marriage to work. Again, if you're married to a believer and you're a Christian, do everything you possibly can. Because let me tell you, divorce is hell. It's awful. Don't desire that. Don't chase that. Now, that's going to mean that you're going to have to do a lot of hard work here. You're going to have to, to work at cultivating and working at a loving, godly heart toward your spouse. You're going to have to die to yourself. Yeah, but I've been married to them for 25 years and they're never going to... You know what? The Lord has put you here. He's given you a ministry to your spouse. He is desiring you to be sanctified and grow. You have to work out these problems together. And by God's grace, again, if they're a Christian, they have the spirit of God in them, you can work it out. But don't go it alone. Ask for help. You don't have to tell the whole church that you're having marital problems. In fact, I would encourage you, don't do that. Don't tell everybody in the whole church. But go to those who are godly and wise and who can help you. Ask for help. Seek biblical counsel. Seek to work it out. It will be far better for you and your family in the end. I promise you. Far better in the end. But maybe you're in a situation where your spouse has sinned against you and your marriage already is in shambles and there is no other option because they've stepped out of the marriage and they've committed adultery or they've just wandered away and they've proven themselves to be an unbeliever and you have at this point biblical grounds and there are times when that's the case. When I've talked to people before and it's very clear, the case is very clear, yeah, you have biblical grounds. It's in your court now what you want to do with that. Or maybe they've just moved out altogether and they're gone and they don't want to come home. Again, talk to one of the elders of this church. Talk to somebody If divorce is inevitable because of the hardness of their heart, you want to make sure that you proceed biblically and in godly counsel. Don't do this wrong. Again, if if divorce is already inevitable and it's already taking place, do it right. Don't sin in that process. You make sure that you keep your character, your integrity, you honor Christ, even if they've gone. And if you do that, God still has a measure of grace for you And maybe, by God's grace, they will repent and you can be restored. And once again, if you're in physical danger, tell someone immediately. Don't don't hide. And I would even add to you, don't don't be afraid. God is your protector and we're here to help you. And so is the law given to us by God. You want to make sure you proceed and seek safety. That does not automatically mean your, your marriage is over. Maybe they need to repent and there is an opportunity for restoration. But if you're in physical danger, let someone know and get out of there immediately. Now again, I'm not saying this is a free pass. I'm saying protect yourself and protect your kids because sin is awful. However, what if you're the one causing the divorce? What if you're the one in sin? What if you are committing sexual immorality even now Or what if you're the one abusing your spouse or neglecting them or you're just simply making their life miserable? You need to know something. You're not just sinning against them. You are sinning against the Lord God. And God is not mocked. And if you don't repent and repair the damage that you're causing, God will visit you with affliction. He will. Again, Proverbs 11, 29, a man who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. You'll get nothing if you tear down your own house. Wives, same thing. Proverbs 14.1, a foolish woman tears down her house with her own two hands. So husbands and wives, if you are the ones who are in sin, repent now. Don't wallow in this. Don't rationalize. Get right with God and get right with your spouse because I shudder to think what will happen if you don't repent. Repent and trust in Jesus He forgives our sins. Put your hope and your trust in him. However, let's just say that you already have been divorced and on biblical grounds and you're just not sure what to do next. Well, again, if you are no longer bound to your spouse 
and you are now free to pursue another marriage, I would encourage you, do so in the Lord. And I would say in the Lord, meaning you honor him from courtship all the way to the wedding day. Don't cut corners, don't sin in your courtship. Doesn't matter if you're engaged. Engaged is not married in this culture. You honor Christ from the time you set foot to meeting a new person to the time you get married. You honor him. And if you honor Christ in your courtship, in your betrothal, or if you're in your engagement, if you honor him all the way to the wedding, he will bless you as well. You honor him. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, yeah, well, I've already been down this road. I've already been divorced and remarried. Maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe four times. Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes. I would encourage you as well. There's nobody beyond forgiveness. There is nobody beyond the grace of God that all sins can be repented of except for the final sin of unbelief. There is no unpardonable sin. Being divorced is not the, the scarlet letter. That's really important for us to grapple with. Again, all sin is awful, isn't it? But aren't we all sinners? So not one is worse than the other. And so if you were the cause of an unbiblical divorce and say you got married, remarried incorrectly, you've sinned, I would even encourage you, stay where you are in your current relationship, but you can still go back to your previous spouse and ask for forgiveness. You won't get remarried again, but you can ask them to forgive you. You can confess your sins to them and certainly confess your sins to the Lord. Don't let things hang in the back. Yeah, but I made such a train wreck of all my marriages. All right. Admit that. Confess that. Go to the Lord, seek forgiveness, and he will, by his grace, forgive you. And then work hard at your current marriage. And don't give up. There's grace for you there. And one last exhortation. If you're not married, but you're sleeping with your partner, you are committing what's called fornication. You're living in sin. Now, it's popular these days. Again, I don't really give a hoot what the world says. It's popular. It's trendy. We've made provisions for it. Oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. I've heard all the arguments. I've said all the arguments. That's not true at all, according to the Bible. Until the Lord commands you, or I should say the Lord commands you to repent and abstain from this until you are married, and then I would encourage you this way, to trust him, to trust him with your relationship that he will bless your obedience, that you not live in sin, that you not sin against him in fornication, but that you honor God in your relationship, abstain and honor him in all ways, and trust that what God has promised you in marriage is better than what the world promises outside of it. So entrust your heart, trust him with your relationship. And if you're in a relationship where they're not a believer and you are professing to be a believer, end it. You're not married yet, end it. But if both of you are claiming to be Christians, honor him with your relationship. You have to. And trust him, my friends, trust him. Now, with all of that being said, maybe you are someone here this morning who is not desiring to be married or even remarried. What should you do? Well, in the providence of God, Matthew 19 verses 10 through 12 talks about this very thing, which is what we're going to talk about next week. And so I would encourage you, if you've endured four weeks of marriage and you don't want to hear it anymore, next week we're going to talk about singleness. And I would even encourage you, if you're married and maybe singleness is not something you're interested in learning about, I would encourage you to learn it. Because you will have friends, yourself, or maybe your children. And it's important that we all understand each other. And understand what the Bible teaches about all things. And so I would encourage you to stick around because next year we're going to talk about the issue of, or the topic of singleness as well. But as we close this morning, I want to bring us, as we're finishing up talking about marriage today, bring us to really the greatest wedding celebration in human history. So turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Now, the final chapters of Revelation, they record the events of the coming last days, including the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to judge the nations and to establish his kingdom. However, just prior to the second coming, the Apostle John records a scene in heaven where the bride of Christ, the church, is finally united to the bridegroom. 
And so we pick it up in Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle Paul records, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who, you, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Ultimately, this reality, it points to, or this is all what marriage points to. Every single marriage on planet Earth is pointing and declaring and shouting this grand reality. A husband who, like Christ, who loves his bride and clothes her with fine linen, bright and, and clean. And the husband treasures his wife and he nourishes his wife and he sanctifies and sacrifices for her. That picture is clearly painted for all the husbands, isn't it? And then also for the wife who makes herself ready for her husband. And yes, she submits to him, she honors him, but she helps him and she cares for him. She loves him. And that's the picture that we see of all of us as believers who look to Christ. In the end, this is how we will be with him as Christ and the church. And what initiates this relationship how do you know that you will be at this marriage supper of the Lamb? Because don't you want to be here? I want to be here. I want to see this. I want to, I want to join my voice with the triumphant cries and calls of all those in heaven, the angels and the seraphim and all of them and the, the believers, those who have given their lives for Christ. I want to join this chorus and praise him. Don't you? The gathering of the assembly on Sunday morning, this is, this is just a mere type and shadow of what's to come. In heaven, we'll know the words to every song, won't we? <laughs> but I mean it, right? We will know, our hearts will know how to praise him. We will know him deeply. We will treasure him richly. And you might be sitting here thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. If that's you, you must Understand and know that you have sin in your heart and in your nature, a sin that keeps you from God, a, a sin that destroys this relationship that he's built you for. All sin must be paid for by death. And what is that for us? That's eternal hell apart from Christ. And yet, God and his infinite mercy and the great love with which he loved us what did he do for us? He sent his only begotten son. He gave Jesus Christ to us as a, an offering, as a gift, as a blessed savior. And Jesus, he goes to the cross sinless. No reason for him on earth to be there in terms of guilt. And yet he goes and gives his life as a ransom for many. And he dies on the cross and all the penalty and grief and shame and punishment of our sin is placed on him and it dies on him. And then he rises the third day to bring new life and to blaze a trail of glory to heaven. 
And all who trust in him and believe in him, who've turned from their sins and say, Lord, I want to follow your way, we follow him. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, or if you're not even sure, don't go home unsure. Turn to him in repentance. And even if we're talking about all these relational issues, if you're here and you're thinking, Lord, I've just done the wrong thing. And this is, the, this is the biggest thing in front of me right now. This is the biggest thing I'm dealing with right now is this relationship. I would encourage you, I would entreat you, exhort you to repent and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me and help me to walk in obedience. Help me to do what's right. Help me to honor you and redeem me, Lord. Redeem me. And by God's grace, by his kindness and mercy, he does. He is a great God and a wonderful Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for your immeasurable grace to us, Lord. And Lord, it's so easy for us to wander off the path. It is so easy for us to stray. When we used to know the way, and then we find ourselves in the forest, and we're just far off, and we can't even hear your voice, and yet you still are there calling to us. And so, God, I would just beg you and plead you, Lord, even first as the preacher for my own soul, to keep me in the right spot. I pray also for the leadership of our church, Lord, to keep us in your grace and help us to walk in obedience. And Lord, for your bride, the bride that you gave your life for, that you would keep us in your grace as well and help us to walk in obedience in these most intimate and personal of relationships. Lord, I pray for every husband and wife in this room I pray, Lord, that you would visit upon them a love and a tenderness. And Lord, if there are spouses who are hardened their hearts in rebellion, that you would soften their hearts and break their hearts wide open. That you would give us and grant us repentance to learn to love each other and follow you. And Lord, I pray for all those maybe who are not married or are no longer married, that you would also give them grace from the scriptures. We know that you will next week and beyond. But Lord, we want to honor you. We want to obey you. Your glory is worth it. We want to rejoice with you on that day. I want to sit at your table and praise you as the beloved of God. And by God's grace, we do. Thank you for your mercy and for your love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.